0: The following podcast is brought to you by fantasy-animation.org an online educational resource dedicated to the academic discussion of fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation we publish weekly blogs and bi-weekly podcasts just like these and uh, there's a whole manner of resources available on our website for you to check out engage with find out more about and then take part in the conversation afterwards To do that, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit at the handle FanAnimResearch, F A N A N I M Research, and we really look forward to hearing from you. For now, do enjoy the show. Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast. I believe I am awake and I am Alex Sargent. And I'm Chris Holliday and I'm dreaming. But we'll both desperately cling to our totems to make sure throughout the uh, duration of the episode. Um, as, as hinted, today we are talking about the Christopher Nolan movie Inception, the heist dream thriller from a few years ago that sort of um, um, stormed uh, cinemas with its sort of mixture of, of, of cryptic narrative and blockbuster visuals and there's lots to talk about in terms of... It's riffing on sci-fi cinema. Its use of dream imagery and the relationship between ideas of you know generic film theory and and fantasy cinema. Chris VFX wise, there's got to be loads to talk about.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really great film to sort of think about visual effects and the potential of and the sort of spectatorial power of visual effects. Um, I think the relationship to narrative, what they do in relation to a narrative that is highly complex. Actually, I think the effects in the film are, are sort of perhaps one of the most coherent elements of the film. So, yeah, and there's been a bit of writing as, w- as well around um, Inception and its sort of time spaces. So, yeah, really excited to get going on this one.
0: And we have a very special guest on the podcast this week to help us uh, think through some of these ideas and more. Uh, Professor Todd McGowan from the University of Vermont um, in the Department of English, who is an extremely prolific author of of many aspects of film theory, including psychoanalysis, existentialism, um, the philosophy of Hegel, and the intersection of these lines of thought uh, with cinema. He's published... uh, oh god countless numbers of really important monographs that have sort of uh, that, that i can assure you todd have been cited on this podcast numerous times not least the real gaze um film affiliate after lacan but as well as things like the impossible david lynch um the fictional christopher nolan which we'll talk about i'm sure in a second um and other books on spike lee uh, rules of the game and comedy um todd thank you so much for joining us
2: oh it's a real privilege to be here thanks alex thanks chris
0: no, it's, it's our privilege uh, Todd, uh, so I think to start things off before we jump into Inception itself I just wanted to ask you a question about fantasy because I'm aware that listeners have a certain definition of fantasy that perhaps Chris and I have provided and that definition often changes depending on the episode sometimes we talk about fantasy in terms of genre sometimes we're talking about fantasy in terms of a sort of, I don't know um, process by which spe- spectators create meaning um, other times we're talking about something that's represented on screen as an act of fantasising so I just wondered how you engage with the term fantasy in your work and perhaps how that links to to your interest in in the filmmaking of Chris Nolan
2: yeah that's great it's a great question I, I think that it does it's one of those terms that has this floating signification to it I think and so I think most people when they think of fantasy think of it as a genre I almost never talk about it as a genre so I almost always think about it as a way to to create a scenario or a scene through which I can work out my desire. So I'm using it in a, in a singular way, but I think it also works collectively culturally. Like I think what Hollywood does or what any cinematic universe does is it creates, it it creates a fantasy world that, People and I, I always think of the trailer as a as a, like a, a like a insight into the fantasy that the film is going to create. And then the, the trailer says to you, "Do you like that? Do you want to participate in this fantasy, or do you not?" And then if you if you like the trailer, then you buy into the fantasy, or you at least you buy a ticket to to get into the fantasy. So I really think of the filmic world itself as a largely as a fantasy structure on its own. And then I think there are certain filmmakers that are more invested in the fantasy d- dimension of cinema, that is that they're more dimension, more invested in the way that the the film can actually show us a stage where our desire gets realized versus others where there's more of a frustration of what we desire. And so we're constantly coming up against very clear obstacles. And I think Nolan's pretty interesting because he goes really, he does both things like there are obstacles and and there are films that really emphasize the obstacle. And then there are films where, and, and often it's the same film where we get this we get a kind of realization of desire that we wouldn't that it would be impossible in real life, so I think that for me, fantasy is this stage where we can find our a way, a path to our desire, a path that you know is is blocked often, but it's 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 nonetheless a path that's that's workable or visible for us,
1: yeah, I mean nolan is is somebody who uh, obviously we're we're sort of recording this in the in the I guess the slipstream of of his latest film, Tenet, and and obviously he's obviously an incredibly sort of divisive figure because of exactly that sort of that that puzzling nature and the idea of, of, of narrative itself becoming spectacle. I mean, do you think he's somebody who? Who sort of stands out within a kind of a contemporary um, Hollywood filmmaking context as someone who is particularly interested in these kinds of in these kinds of things. He loves the he loves the sort of mind game film, and he likes sort of um, these sort of multiple layers of of, of embedding. And, and so, given that you've written on him and and sort of. Um, had a, had a scholarly interest in him is is that where your primary um interest in him as a filmmaker sort of comes from that exactly what he's trying to do with 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 narrative and spectacle and the relationship between the two and this idea of fantasy on top of that
2: yeah absolutely i i, I view that my idea is that nolan is kind of what orson wells would be if he hadn't been destroyed by the hollywood like if he was alive you know 40 years 50 years later like i think nolan does a lot of the same things that wells Does but Wells never got the opportunity really to to have a lot of money other than the first film he made have a lot of money to make films so I think my idea is that that's kind of what Nolan is and he's working things out and I think what you say like this relationship between narrative and spectacle I think it's so important in in the way Nolan structures his films right I think that's the in many ways I think that's the key idea like how does that relationship work itself out and then some films are more about the narrative and then some films are more about the spectacle. And the one we're talking about today really is is marries both together in such a more maybe more than any of them.
0: I guess what is interesting about Inception is that there are lots of sort of narratives surrounding the movie and that uh one of them is a sort of industrial narrative about the sort of unique status Nolan has, right, and that he's able to make a film like this that that costs the amount it does, that has the level of VFX and and spectacle that we're talking about, and has a certain grammar to it, or certain visual grammar to it, that is that is very much you know part of the of the mechanics and, and economics of, of Hollywood filmmaking today. But within that, is very interested in uh, in narrative e- experimentation, in in a nar- narratological e- um, experimentation, I guess, and and there's that makes him quite unique through various reasons, you know, to, surrounding his career. So I wondered what you. When how you came to Inception as sort of a a a, um, a a bit of academic interest? Would you was it Inception that sort of brought you into Nolan? Were you already interested in Nolan before the came, film came along? What what kind of what was your backstory with the movie itself that that sort of kick-started this interest?
2: Yeah, I was interested in Nolan before. So the film for me, I, I the first Nolan film I saw was Memento. I saw it in the theater, and I yeah. I thought it was stunningly good. And but it really, I have to say, it was really prestige when I first thought wow, there's a guy who makes consistently these films that are pretty amazing. And I still think Prestige is the top one for me. So I, that's what I would say. I remember exactly where I was when I saw Prestige. I was traveling and I, I remember the theater and I, I remember turning to my spouse, who's also a film theorist, and I said, you know, he's pretty great. Like, that's just that's the first thing we said to each other. He's pretty great. And so, yeah, and, and I think there's a way in which Inception develops the most, this, like, it's so narratively complex, right, and and yet, and, and, but the, the spectacle of it is also as stunning as any of his films, so I think in certain way, it's the, it's the high point of both of those, those dimensions of his, his filmmaking, so I, I, I know there are people that are disappointed by it, and especially, because I'm friends with a lot of psychoanalytic critics, and, and they, like, Slavoj Zizek doesn't like it, and he, and, and part of the thing that, that, drives a lot of people crazy my friends is the use of the term subconscious all the time by by the by the Leonardo DiCaprio character by Cobb so mm-hmm. I don't know so I, and I try to like include that in my reading and make that part of the way he's misguided and, and as if Nolan kind of understood that although I you know I so that made me feel like I had to be creative but I feel like the film is, is, is stunning for the way it brings just like I was saying and we were saying like those two things together
1: yeah, I mean it's 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 one that that I mean I great to to hear about the the prestige, which I also I think is absolutely kind of fabulous, and because it's about the power of illusion and, and belief and all these things that all these threads that Nolan ultimately kind of plays with 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 something like Inception and and the film's tagline the. the or is it something about the, f- the dream is reality or something like that? The dream is real. Um, but, I mean, he, he's sort of, I think he's striking for, for me and Inception is particularly striking in terms of the, the sort of idea of, of narrative and narrative formula and formulas being these fixed, stable, closed systems uh, and, and how the film perhaps i think connects up to to sort of more more contemporary iterations of something like the, the the puzzle film as i said the narrative narrative becoming becoming spectacle these kind of convoluted narrative um, or series of narrative premises you've got um writing by thomas al on the mind game film uh, there's something sort of uh, retrospective retroactive the past is formed in the present the present rediscovers the past reshaping the future movies that play games with character with audience all of these things these sort of this sort of maze like um, kind of quality to the to the diegesis and the idea of diegesis as truth the the, the fact that the diegesis and the, the both the world of the film the story in which which is taking place in the world are sort of enigmatic and i really love that about the about the film and and sort of i um, and kind of i guess placing special effects and digital technology within that i think as i said a lot of the the the, certainly the writing on the film in relation to its visual effects um in relation to science, in the, case of the science fiction genre more broadly s- stuff around how the film is sort of an allegory of filmmaking as a process the power of illusion and so forth um but there's something really kind of cl- yeah cleverly plotted in both time and and narrative its use of time its use of narrative um its use of the kind of diegetic layers i think yeah it's kind of really 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 fascinating as a as a as a work of sort of science science fiction and yet at the same time is also really understated Alex talked about the industrial narratives and, and Nolan's place within sort of visual effects and one of the reasons that the prestige is so useful because it's sort of about the mechanics of of how to do things by hand which is obviously exactly what Nolan's about you know you don't you never really see what is it the dead bird in the cage that's the thing that you but actually it's sort of quite dirty a lot of his effects aren't aren't i mean they're fantastic and the cgi and digital technology is kind of present in the film and there is this real myth around his use of digital effects which he does use um but a lot of the industrial narratives about how he's kind of working things out he is a filmmaker who does what his films do and also does what the spectator has to do kind of work out problems work things out and and put them on screen so that's what i really like about about both inception as a film but also exactly what alex is saying those sorts of industrial narratives that seem to circle around around the film and and nolan as a as a filmmaker
2: yeah i really like that i i think that that you know the notion of like the way that the narrative is told i think he's really in he really gets something about that and 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 i think you mentioned retroactivity and i think you know tenet obviously is really explicitly Mm -hmm. about that but so is memento and so is inception like the idea is like you get to the end, and then that's where we have to think about narratives as told from the end back to the beginning, and that's how we would properly understand them. And that, you know, Freud has this term, notreglicite, which basically means retroactivity or, or going like, belatedness. And so this idea that I think Nolan is in many ways the filmmaker of that idea that that you you think about the narrative from the end, and then you, you the beginning that almost doesn't even matter because. The beginning gets constituted only through the end. And I think that really, it's interesting to think about that relative to the way that effects work, right? Like, cause that, cause that's about narrative. But then if you're thinking about narrative in that way, then I think the effects end up being these moments that are constituted through that retroactivity and they, something comes out through the effect. I think like there's a moment, like we get these moments where something like we get an encounter that we, we wouldn't. Didn't anticipate, but it only becomes clear because we're going backwards through the through the narrative, and I, I feel like obviously Memento is, is makes that clear, but I think it's also clear in Inception, which I so I, I really like that way. Like you plant the right thing, and then everything up to that, it's like as if everything's been leading up to that point. So then everything is shifted by the way by what gets planted, and I think it's also true the end of the very end of the film everything shifts by how you relate to that the spinning of the I remember being in the audience and it was amazing like everyone was so upset like that you could feel the entire cinema just People like oh my and people were shouting things and it's I mean in America that's not a common thing people don't shout at the cinema usually typically so it was a really it really upset people and then it, it obviously caused a lot of speculation but I think that is the like that ending then. So I I like what you're saying, Chris, that the, like what the narrative is doing internally, the film is also doing to the spectator.
1: Yeah. Uh, but I suppose also that the idea of effects actually. While you're talking, I mean, I've got about fifty thousand things based on now uh, what you said, and I and I will <laughs> defer to Alex imminently. But actually, the labour of visual effects, you know, the visual effects are something that are added in after the fact anyway. They're mm-hmm. sort of po- visual effects are fundamentally posthumous because they kind of come in after after the, the sort of film ha- has ended, if you like. So so we're always seeing in visual effects shots a kind of combination of, of time. We're seeing production and post production, and, and so there's sort of something that I, I don't quite no but there's something in in the way we're always seeing split split temporalities we're always seeing beginnings and endings in, in in every sort of visual effect shot in in lots and lots of ways which is yeah a very not very great uh, not a very great way not a great way to, to sort of say it but there's something yeah about shifting temporalities in visual effect shots so that the special effects are as much about the spectacle as we see it as much as the sort of the 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 spectacle of, of time as it is being layered on top of these blue screen or whatever it, whatever kind of effect it, it might be but um yeah exciting
0: well, it occurs to me also that, that you know, when we talk to um, VFX practitioners, that the act they do is very retrospective in that they get given a, you know, an end goal by their, you know, production house, you know, make, make you know, we, we've we just um, recorded an episode talking about Captain Marvel, where we're talking about making of the photorealistic cat throughout the movie, but make, make a photorealistic cat. And then the labour process is this gradual actualization of the end goal, right, which I guess is a creative thing anyway. Yeah? You know, you want to get to here, how do I get there um but the but the films what i think what makes nolan's interesting is that there's a certain what he's managed to do is create a very appealing you know a, in terms of mass appeal aesthetic out of confusion or bewilderment or or befuddlement or whatever the, the right phrase is where part of the pleasure of watching these movies is is waiting for the moment that the the Rubik's cube clicks and all the sides are the same color right it's waiting for that moment where okay this will all make sense at at this moment and there's a pleasure in things making sense that you know is part of all narrative theory and all narrative pleasure but 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 there's something odd about the, the delight in the struggle of it all. Yeah, there's, there's you know, the films are quite referential about this. There's you know the Tom Hardy character that constantly keeps going like, so hang on a minute. Well, how's this all work? And and am I am I keeping up? And like obviously that's a gag at the spectator who might be struggling. Who is sort of gleefully struggling to keep up, and the film is gleefully complicated, you know all these layers of dreams there's a certain point in it where you're where I can remember watching it for the first time where the audience just starts laughing and not at the film but kind of with the film because it's just like, oh now the only solution to this is that we have to go into an even deeper le- level right you know so there's there's something about playing with the spectator and asking them to um You know, go with me on this journey. There's this level of trust being offered because Nolan's such a publicly well-known filmmaker. But also, don't worry, I will confuse you, but it won't ever get too much or or I won't ever take you to the point where it's really kind of, you know, avant-garde and meaning becomes a lot more sort of, you know, subjective and, and formless and all this kind of stuff. And I just I'm, I'm always interested in the sort of what you think the politics of all that are, uh, Todd. Because like there's a there's a certain you know a lot of what your work does so well is sort of blend the political and the aesthetic really nicely. Right. So I wondered if what your thoughts were on on what what what's politically going on there in this sort of mass enjoyment in these films that 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 are pl- joyfully um un- difficult to understand. With a sort of tacit acknowledgement that you will understand them eventually, right?
2: Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, I think that's the political complication. Like, is yeah. The, like, I, I'm fascinated by what you said. This tacit acknowledgement that you will eventually understand, and I think, you know, that's what for me. Like, I think the the, the politically more radical films are mm. are never giving you that, right? Like, they're mm. or you get it in such a way that it's going to fundamentally alter the way that you think about things because it comes with such a, like you get, I think this is true in Lynch. Like you you get what you were thinking you wanted, but then you, you find out you didn't want it at all. Right. <laughs> like that's what's so great about Lynch's films. Like he understands the way in which your unconscious desire actually is aiming at something that you consciously don't, aren't sure that you're after. And, but I, I think that what you're suggesting that in the case of Nolan, that's not true, that there is this, maybe that there's this pact that kind of dulls that political edge of his cinema. Although I don't know about, it. I mean, like mm. I do, I, I mean, cause it like, think about, I, I mean, inception is interesting, right? Because it doesn't like, maybe there's a pact that you're going to get some that's all going to hold together. But then in the end, does it like, I think there's a way in which that the ending he do, kind of does what I just said, Lynch does like, he gives you that answer and it's not really, Like, I think back about that audience reaction to the film, like they weren't happy with the answer that they got. So to me, that's the key to a to a politically more emancipatory or radical film is that it it doesn't give you the answer that you it sets up a a question or a, a problem. And it doesn't give you the answer that seems evident that you desire you consciously think you want. Instead, it gives you what corresponds to an unconscious desire that's actually laid out. And I and I think Nolan does that. And I think, you know, I think Memento does it. I think with that ending in Memento where you get this, this everything you want the answer. And then what you get is, oh, well, the answer is just that he's told this lie to himself that Mm -hmm. in order to give himself something to do, basically. And then and then in Inception, I think there's no the ending does not really give you a clear sense of, and we were joking about this at the beginning. Is this, am I awake or is this a dream? And I think the ending of the film doesn't allow you to distinguish between that. And then I think Nolan's point is the inability to distinguish is really the answer. That that, that there's something counts more about the dream logic and our investment in it than it does about real life. And that's where, where I think the real politics of his filmmaking lies.
0: Yeah, it's, it, it's an interesting dilemma because I, you're right. Actually, I, that's a simplification because you're, it ends with a question rather than a, than an answer. Some of his movies, you know, I think you have something like Dunkirk, where the certainly the narrative ambiguity does slot into a certain okay, it was this, this, and this, but right. that's not true of Inception. It you know it ends on the will, will the totem fall over or not, and therefore is it a dream or is it is it not a dream? Spoiler alert, but but um, you know. We're, we're twenty minutes in. Everyone uh, watch the movie, um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 an it, but but it's an interesting question. But I'm interested in what the ramifications are in terms of what the answer, what either of the answer of those questions means, because I'm not quite sure. I always understand. What's at stake in for Nolan or for the audience in asking that question? So why does it matter if the totem falls down? We could we could argue philosophically it matters because it's you know right back to sort of it's the Descartian problem right of of are we dreaming are we awake what does those two things look like what is reality is it a subjective or objective uh, truth you know big questions but I'm not quite sure what the film posits um, and, and to me actually what is interesting about Inception is 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 the idea is if the film asks you to think, is it a dream or is it not? That seems an almost very simple question, right. out of quite a complicated film. That is almost not a I, the, the fact. What Inception has to say about dreams, to me at least, is the least interesting aspect of the movie. What's much more interesting is what it has to say about. Uh, the role of fantasy the role of memory and the relationship between those two things and, and filmmaking which we've sort of alluded to thus far so i don't I, you know, I, I i wonder what question it's asking us to really consider and what the political ramifications of of either answer are in in the in the universe of of nolan
2: yeah i think it's a great question alex i mean my sense is that it doesn't matter at all like i i my my claim is that that's a false piece to like a a false yeah. clue like that we're not we shouldn't be looking at we like the, the, the top is really there, and it's. I mean, I think there is even a clue in the film that we can't trust whether because Cobb does say you can't only your own. T- if the totem is from someone else; it doesn't tell you anything. And he then clearly says, "This is the totem from Mallet I I have right, so it's so he has already said that we shouldn't trust whether the totem st- whether this works or not. So I really feel like that's a way in which the film is saying, look, look over here, like in the prestige, like look over here so that you don't see over here where what's where the real question is, which I think is like what are what the dream tells us. And I agree that the dream itself, it's not really concerned with that, but it's concerned with how we invest ourselves in it or how what memories we invest ourselves in and that that's where the real the real struggle is the real, what really counts is. And it's not in this question of like, what's real or what's not real. And I think that, and I think that's true in all of Nolan's work, right? He doesn't, he cares about the, the revelatory power of the fiction. I mean, that's why I called my book, the fictional Mm. Christopher Nolan, because I think he thinks like these narratives that we invest ourselves in, they have, that's where we really reveal like what we are, the real of our, of our own, the way we, fantasize the way we desire the way we enjoy so i think that that for him is the real question and the question is not whether oh is this just a is this fake or is it real
1: yeah i yeah i think that the the i wrote down as you were talking that idea of the yeah the power of the of the revelation and and i was thinking about um i don't know i was thinking about readerly texts and writerly texts and and tradition and modernity and i was thinking about sort of nolan's interested in types of deception so exactly as you're as you're saying it's it's he's interested in you know, he's a filmmaker who's interested in 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 the building in this case the building of fictional worlds and the convincing um, construction of fictional worlds but sort of types of deceptions you have Uh, deceptions on a narrative level between characters. Um, The film also, I I made a couple of notes as I was watching it that the film itself has sort of false memories because there are scenes and you know lots of films do this in terms of replaying scenes I think this is why if we think about the genre of the film it is both a science fiction film and a heist film and like a mystery film and and the sort of replaying of, of scenes and, and sequences from a new angle so the film itself has false memories and there are bits where the film shows us things, the Fight Club's a good example, Memento also is a good example You know, it shows us scenes and then shows us the same scenes again and so the film is lying to us it is populated with unreliable narrators um, and so the, the moment towards the end of the film where you sort of um and I suppose typically for this podcast we sort of started at the end which is perfect in this case starting you know, at the end of the <laughs> film but towards the end of the film where the relationship the full extent of the relationship between between Cobb and Mal is coming out and and you see a scene replayed where it's not the younger version of DiCaprio and Marion Cotillard it's they're all sort of older versions they've already lived through this life once um and you see them as old an old couple. Um, and the film is sort of playing with that. It sort of shows you a scene where they're lying on the, with their heads on the, on the um, railway lines. And then it shows you again, both as young as, and as old. And I look like, quite like the, I, the idea that it's all in the mind. The film itself has these false memories, but it's also interested in kind of partial answers. And that's maybe where the power of the ending for me, it does wobble because of the soundtrack but I think, as Nolan himself has spoken about, that it's important that Cobb's not even looking. So it's not that it wobbles or whether it does or whether it doesn't. It's that, that Cobb's not looking. He's not interested in that because he's looking at this this image of his, his children. So this sort of kind of partial answers. We get partial answers, which, which presumably only increases our desire for that full revelation. We're getting the fraction or the fragment rather than the full confle- confession, I guess. Um, and then also it suspends answers. It sort of prevents or halts... Disclosure, because at the end of the film it cuts off. So despite uh, despite a form of revelation, it cuts us off at the end. So all of these things, you know, Bart's is writing on readily and writingly texts, and the and the and the role of of sort of types of deception and what a, what a text can do to us. I think is in exactly what you're you're saying about yeah, Nolan's interest in both the dream logic, but also this kind of revela- revelatory power or of, of, of illusion, which again makes the prestige a kind of perfect perfect analogy in lots of ways we we enjoy the the kind of not the thrill of the chase but the the thrill of the reveal
2: it is it is interesting i mean i come back to what you said earlier alex about the way he we have this promise implicit in the nolan film and that's what makes people like it but i mean just the way chris you were describing it it is sort of curious how he's managed to be successful right like he he doesn't he does like i think there is this pact with the audience but then it's it's violated in all these ways especially in inception and then and yet people really still love his films. And I think a lot of that is the spectacle. It's almost like the narrative is this way in which I'm gonna challenge what the audience consciously wants. And then the spectacle is which is the way in which I'm gonna give them what they want. Like that I just think of that scene in Inception where we get the the streets of Paris folded back on top of each other. That's just, it's just enjoyable. Like however that fits in the narrative, it's just really enjoyable to watch that. And I feel like that's part of the way in which he's, he's paying off the spectator for this other, I'm going to thwart your desire on the one hand, but I'm going to, I'm going to grant you what you, what you want on the other hand. I wonder if that, if that, dynamic isn't crucial to what he's he, he's doing and and you can maybe think of that in terms of narrative and spectacle but maybe that's too simple
1: mm. now there there is something interesting and i, and I and i'm going to going to to muddle it but i know eilish wood has, has written something on inceptions time spaces and talks about the narrative is so complex in terms of its layering and it's it's sort of um it's not it's not quite forking paths in the way that that I guess narratologists might understand, but it's it's all about that loop. And even I think he writes writes on a piece of paper that loop between creating and perceiving our world and the dream and as reality. And you know, f- you have lines like "Follow you into your fantasy and come back to reality." Dom, and all these kinds of things. Um, and actually, the, the the visual effects in the film are pretty sort of I don't want to say telegraphed, but kind of straightforward and clear cut. So the corridor is revolving and Paris is folding in on itself. There's something quite. I don't want to say simplistic, but sort of something quite, um, uh, I don't know, easy. uh, um, Maybe it's because it's so explicitly out there that the visual effect is being presented to you in a way that is so obvious and so sort of set-piecey that that full disclosure of the effect is something and it's and also that the film presents it as an effect you have the sort of the classic surrogate spectators you have um uh, dom and ariadne looking at the paris as it folds over yes so there's something quite explicit and and exhibitionist and presentational about the way that the film is visualizing those kinds of effects they are effects in the film and effects for us as we watch the film and so forth um and that leaves space for the narrative to be as complex as it is um and so there is, and, and and I, as I said, I've kind of butchered what she's saying, but there is something quite sort of um, clear-cut about the 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 effects on show that they're not hidden; they are explicit and revealed to us in a way that the narrative never quite reveals its hand.
0: Well, just just to add to that, that the Paris sequence, which I agree is like. The, you know if you have to only watch three minutes of this movie it's that but it but it's it's there's a the prologue to it it within that individual sequence is the conversation the two of them have uh sorry Todd, one of the features of this podcast is that i don't remember any characters names in any films i've ever seen ever but the two characters leonardo dicaprio um and and elliot page of course um uh and they're having a conversation um in the film uh about you know and she and, and he says to her um uh, what you know how do we get here do you remember and they have a kind of Back and forth about you know no i don't remember the beginning of this conversation and of course we don't remember the beginning of the conversation either because we've been thrust into it halfway through because we as spectators have been playing with a film grammar that's very happy to dump us you know that happens in how many times does that happen in a film it happens all the time you get dumped into the middle of a conversation and your sort of brain fills in what you did before what must have been said up until this point and then you jump straight back in and off you go and and so it's interesting that that line of dialogue where the film is kind of inviting you to see that yes, you know, they are in a dream, they are recognizing in their dream, but what we are w- watching as as you point out, Todd, is is very is is extra fictional. Is fiction declaring itself to be fiction, which is you know that is what fantasy is. You know, it, both as a genre and as a sort of storytelling trope. It's it's fiction that that you know that I think it's Atterbury um, who says that fantasy is extra fictional or declares its fictionalness rather than tries right. to disguise its fictionalness. Um, so it, they have two characters basically telling you, yeah, you know that thing you're doing right now, we're doing it too, and it's weird, isn't it? And then Paris folds in on itself. <laughs> And I'm I'm interested in the dialogue between the narrative and the spectacle, because the spectacle is obviously experientially doing this incredible, like, wow, you'd never see this in real life. But of course you'd never see it in real life. This isn't real life. It just told you it wasn't, like, two seconds ago before it even happened. So I don't know what the visuals do in relationship to the narrative, but there's certainly a very tricksy uh, back and forth going on in that. And I can't, you know, it's it's it's, yeah... Todd, you take it yeah. away. <laughs> yeah, no, it's
2: great. It's such a great observation, and I think isn't it funny too that the visuals don't feel the need to be realistic, right? Like mm. that's like I think the spectacle. Like clearly, we would never see Paris folding in on itself. Clearly, in Interstellar, we would never see. That. I just remember that baseball field from Interstellar. You know, it's such a it's such an unrealistic and yet completely believable mise-en-scene and i feel like that's the key like he wants to create worlds that are not realistic but are believable and i think that's the that's this idea of like the fiction that you can invest yourself in and so he's trying to create a world where you can invest yourself in and i i wonder if that's maybe the answer to that question of like why he's so popular at with the given the complexity and i think it's because he creates a world that you can masses can invest themselves in and that's the thing and, and so you can even you can believe in it even while knowing it's not real and i think that's really a crucial distinction that that can like what is the status of our belief right and that's yeah so
0: mm-hmm. so, so as to add to the final the question it dilemma let's add a few substreams of meaning down the down the layers to that final question one question it asks us at the end is is this a dream or is it not a dream but which I think is, but I think almost the que- another question the film is asking you is are you, going to, are you going to engage with that question when you walk out of the cinema or are you going to get, engage in the bigger question which is that it doesn't matter because even if it is a dream or even if it is not a dream, both, in both cases it's still fictional. Yeah, uh, right. because it, why does it matter if it's a dream or not? It, it, it's still none of these characters are real. None of these things actually happened. So it doesn't. You know, w- 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 it, why invest so much? Does it matter that it was all a dream? Because it was all a dream in the sort of you know, if we take the Wizard of Oz, you know, cinema as dream kind of uh, metaphor. You know, um, and and I guess what I'm interested in this is probably more of a reception issue than a than a than a formal issue because I think the film perfectly invites both of those considerations is that i think what nolan successfully manages to do is that you know to be blunt i suspect 80 90 percent of audiences primarily engage with that first question but the film allows for enough opportunities to allow people to engage with that second question um at the same time sometimes the totem is a red herring yeah as you as you were saying yeah um, no. it doesn't matter
2: yeah, Alex, I totally I, I think that's a great point. And I think that that the way that he he gets you like because it, like if every like our the, the social reality that we experience is also fictional, right? Like, <laughs> and, and it matters because of the way we invest ourselves in, in it. And I think mm-hmm. that and i think even about that reality the question of what's real and what's not real is not really ever the question it's what are you invested in which fictions count for you and i so i think to get that to create that shift i think this film is great on that question right like it's i think it's his best film on the question of how do we relate how do we should we relate to this the the fiction as a fiction and then Not not counted as less because we understand that it's fictional, and I think that's really the key. So there's a way in which he's saying, look, the experience of films is more important perhaps than the experience of real life. And it's interesting that you brought up Wizard of Oz because no one in people when they remember Wizard of Oz they remember the fictional color part. They the other part it's like okay it's fine, but it's not like oh, what's the real in that film? That doesn't really matter. What matters is what Dorothy gets to explore when she's in Oz.
0: Completely agree with you, Todd, which is why anyone that says that The Wizard of Oz is a conservative movie hasn't seen it because um, it might it might be on the page, but on the screen, it's a fundamentally radical experience because it basically, you know, experientially says Kansas is grey, dull and boring and, and basically exists as in reality as a perfunctory wraparound device to get us in and out of the theater and the real fun to be had is in dream and fantasy and the yellow brick road so yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but but i but i have a contractual obligation to m- mention the wizard of oz in every single episode of this podcast and i've just fulfilled that so uh, perhaps we won't delve too much down that uh, particular slipstream hi everybody if you'll permit me to pause the podcast just for a second i'd like to ask a favor These podcasts are completely run on Chris and I's spare time between our academic jobs um, and they are free for you to download, free for you to consume and hopefully to learn from. That's why we do it. That's why we're interested in recording it. However, we could do with your help to make the programme more more visible and to make sure as many people are accessing it as possible whatever podcast subscription service you've downloaded this from if you could quickly give us a like a subscribe and a review if the formatting will allow you that will allow us to increase our visibility on that platform ensuring we get more listeners and we're able to spread the word about fantasy animation to more and more people we're delighted by the response the podcasts are receiving so far we're really privileged to have the audience we do so far but the more the merrier please help us make that possible Otherwise, please do enjoy the conversations that follow, uh, and the more conversations that will follow in the episodes to come. Okay. Chris, VFX, VF, how does VFX play in all this? Because that's that's the big question. I mean, the impossible question. Um, but what is what is because of, part of all of this, therefore, is that um, part of the of the asserting of fictionality is the assertion of CGI over live action as well. And you've alluded to. Nolan's relationship to that in the past because he's quite often seen as a filmmaker that sort of is a champion for practical filmmaking right but yeah. but 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 his films don't necessarily bear that out or, or the film doesn't necessarily bear that out
1: no I mean I it's funny because actually what it seems to, to to what I want to do on this podcast is in fact not talk about animation at all I've, I've now I've moved over to the fantasy side you can do animation <laughs> Alex. Um, and I think actually the key thing is is when Todd was talking about the what what counts, or which fictions count for you? Because, and you're right with the the sort of Wizard of, Wizard of Oz. It's about wh- whichever place feels like home, not reality. It's which whichever feels like home, wherever you feel like most at home. But I was thinking about kind of fictional world theory in the way in which we define fictional spaces and and the the. the skyfall a bond movie is as fictional as how to train your dragon they're just their fictionality is defined in different ways one is through like james bond doesn't exist in my world but daniel craig does and equally the, the fictionality of, of how to train your dragon is through both you know the the presence of dragons but also the ontology of its animatedness um and so I've, i'm really interested in sort of fictional world theory and and and, and how and the relationship was between supposed to be fantasy fiction and historical fiction, but actually they're both fictional. And the difference is a degree rather than of kind. What's more interesting in film studies is not necessarily what we escape from, but what we escape into. This is, you know, this is what this is what people writing on fictional was uh, are kind of interested in. So I, I absolutely I absolutely agree with that. And actually, what the film posits, perhaps through its special effects, is that the the dream, the special effects in the film, or, or the the explicitly marked sequences that are designed to be understood as effects only exist in the in the dream world so the paris folding over and the exploding sort of books and and fruit and all that sort of stuff they are used by the film to show us that this is a dream world because these are because visual effects don't happen in the real world they only happen in these sorts of sub sub layers but actually presumably at the level of industry visual effects happen on all the layers we just don't see them and so there is something really interesting about how the film you and i think this is what what wood's talking about in 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 why Inception is a good film to to use to think about what effects do and what we expect and what we're up perhaps to, to sort of to, to speak the, the language of fantasy what we desire, what do we want from special effects? Well we want them to be special. and if we want them to be special we want to be able to know that they're special or to at least see them. And so perhaps why that's why the film relegates its its use of effects or its, its explicit use of effects to, to to worlds that we know are dreams because it allows what, what it allows Nolan to do is actually use setting but also use effects to perhaps in his own mind figure out the order of play where things go and, and we know i think that that's what i mean about the special effects actually giving a sense of coherency perhaps um but you're absolutely right in original in answer to your original question alex yeah he goes for um uh, material ones but no uh no he uh <laughs> yeah, he's very a lot of the stuff i mean the the, the famous rotating um corridor sequence i think was Sort of supervised by Chris Corbold, who obviously, as you well know, is a name familiar from the Vaughn franchise, but um, the sort of which obviously themselves have a really interesting relationship to the materiality of sort of special effects and miniatures and models as opposed to. Um, digital technology perhaps but no Nolan certainly has a a, a relation an industrial relationship to, to doing things in camera but actually a lot of stuff written on on inception you know double negatives work on the film um how they created sort of limbo city if you like and the falling falling buildings the ends of the earth sort of aesthetic um and how this CGI is is a fundamental element of the production of the film but I think from a spectatorial point of view um yeah it's it's perhaps used invisibly or or used in a way that we don't we don't see the effects in the real world because that's not how the film chooses to define that world for us it relegates or, or or allocates perhaps is a better way of putting it um the the visibility of its digital effects to the dream to the dream spaces because that's the slow motion of the car perhaps fall the van falling off of the bridge and the slow motion rain all of that sort of stuff it's used for hum- I think effects are being used in service of coherency and effects being used in service of the coherency of the fictional world. And, and for us as spectators to make sense of those sorts of different different layers, a very convoluted answer to a very simple question.
2: No, I like that. I wonder though, I wonder about that. I mean, I like that link between the effect and the coherence. And I wonder if that, how you would think about that. Like, it's almost like narrative drives nolan to incoherence and then the effect uh, ends up sealing it back into into creating the recreating the coherence of the world and i wouldn't i mean i hadn't thought so much until just now about this relationship between narrative and effect but i think that really it it does i just think about the way in which his use of effects is so particular i think uh, especially i think of the of the superhero films because it's so different And there, I think, I mean, that's probably why he has the reputation for the practical effect, because he doesn't he doesn't like it's not like a Marvel film when you're watching Dark Knight or Dark Knight Rises or even Batman Begins. And I think that that. That that, again, there's something about believability. And I think, and that's why the the, the idea of coherence and believability, maybe like that, that Nolan doesn't want to give up on that notion, that idea that we should believe in the world that we're seeing. And that because our belief in it is the thing is actually the nature of it. Like it only exists insofar as we believe in it. And I want, I think, I feel like that's maybe one of the real central ideas for him. And that's why the, the effects have to have, do what they what you said they do, Chris, is create that mm. coherence and if we if we lacked that, then I think maybe the world would fall apart
1: yeah which which
0: all fold in on itself right yeah, right yeah, well exactly exactly Or they have to be used to, to deliberately allow for moments of incoherence, so if you think about the Paris folding in on itself, that is a moment where the film is saying this is fictional don't you know it, right. it helps support what isn 't fictional in the movie, but it this is fictional. And the use of VFX, a very obvious moment of VFX um, in that in that uh, sequence, helps to support that at a sort of at a material level. It's interesting because it links to um, uh, a work that that Scott uh, Ben Tyra has been doing, riffing on on your work, Todd, about sort of in. In a very great collection called Fantasy Animation: Connections Between Media's Mediums, Genres," available all very good bookstores around the, the world, I'm sure, but uh, at, a, at an affordable price. But we move on from the plug uh, to the um, to the fact that he talks about sort of he uses your categories of sort of the fantasy of desire and the fan- uh, cinema of desire and cinema of fantasy, and the idea that some cinema sort of integrates fantasy and desire, uh, which tend to be the more politically conservative movies, conservative, and some. Mate. Um, And some offer a sort of disintegrated vision of fantasy and desire, and that allows for sort of further thought and discourse and and a lack of believability in in a structural system. Uh, And he sort of applies that to um, VFX uh, work, actually in Game of Thrones, but he's talking about that like the idea of a believable effect actually rests quite a lot on an image that is integrated between levels of what we might call fantasy, if you will, the VFX, and the desire for something to be, you know, real based in sort of photorealistic Grammar. and so an integrated image an integrated special effect image is one that looks real because it integrates those two things succinctly and it looks like we're in a real space even though they might have painted out some skyscrapers in the background or a crowd or put a crowd in or all the things that they do you know that nolan does all throughout this movie but we don't necessarily recognize as special effects and then the special effects or uh, well w- w- what therefore that implies which uh, ben bless him in 5,000 words didn't quite get to because he's busy talking about a game of thrones um but but what that implies is there could be such a thing as a disintegrated image where that phantasmic supplement the vfx supplement is allowed to be disintegrated from the structure of which it's sort of engaging with and perhaps what we get in paris is exactly that an explosion of phantasma on screen which which as you say in your book kind of actually highlights the the vacuity or the the illusionness of all this where like a fantasy without a structure or a desiring structure to support it is just a fantasy and therefore has no power. Um, so perhaps what Nolan's doing with VFX is he isn't not using VFX. He uses them when he wants things to look. I mean, guess for a better word, fake on screen. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's and he's playing that out in his you know move from one technology to another.
2: Yeah, I love that idea, Alex. That 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 it's the moment of obvious fakeness. And it's interesting. Like I think you're right. Like it does rather than creating an integrated world. It's precisely what causes this moment of disintegration, where the the coherence. I think that's right that the 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 coherence of the fantasy world actually marks the incoherence of the of the rest of the filmic world. Right, like that's. I think that's really great that there's a that, and I think that's true that that Nolan doesn't really fit. He doesn't try to. You don't come out of Nolan's films feeling, feeling perfectly integrated. As a subject within the social order right in fact you feel the opposite you feel like you feel precisely this moment of disintegration i mean i remember when i walked out of memento i was like what, what can i even rely on like i didn't feel like i could rely on the truth of anything and i feel like that's the that in in inception you walk out with this like what what really counts for me and i think that's like if you can get people to ask those kinds of questions that's i count that as a radical That's what the aesthetic at its most radical does like it causes these things that you would take for certain to be questionable.
0: Yeah. And somehow makes them entertaining. That's the mm. b- really bizarre aspect of Nolan. Is that most times that happens? If you think of someone like Lynch, or if you think of some, you know, the the sort of you know art house traditions or things like that. Usually, that kind of question. I guess. <clears throat> I guess it is entertaining in a sort of you know uh, class based you know appreciative system whereby like you know the art house part of what's entertaining about it is that it is that you know to be a good socialist you need to go to the art house every week have a expensive cup of coffee and and discuss the issues afterwards right you know so there is a certain entertainment that we would shouldn't discount in all that sort of stuff but but the idea of doing that on a on a sort of mass appeal level at a at the the sort of the address of the blockbuster to do it and to make people feel like that's friday night entertainment is is remarkable in terms of the bringing together of lots of different worlds and audiences there
2: it is i think i mean i'm going to overstate this is too generous to Nolan I think but it's like mm. what Shakespeare was able to do right like he, <laughs> he appeals to a po- like he, he was trying to create popular plays right and yet and yet they are plays that you know like just have this amazing kind of theoretical philosophical you know political content to them so I I mean I don't I wouldn't put Nolan at no. the level of Shakespeare but I do think that he's trying to do a similar thing like how can I how can I make this complexity digestible, right? Like that's what he's I think that's what he's trying to do. And that I really appreciate that. Like I think that is and I, I have an appreciation for Jean Luc Godard and, you know, the whole that whole tradition. And like I I think last year at Marion Bad is maybe the one of the greatest movies ever made. But I still feel like there's a limitation to that. Just what you're saying. Like it just can't there's no way everyone could find can go to last year at bad and find it engaging. Where but everyone could go to inception and, and feel engaged with it so i think that that there is really something to be said for that
1: yeah i mean i'm as you are as you were writing i was trying to to make an analogy or thinking about the analogy to the prestige and whether we are christian bale and this is going to be spoiler i think whether we're christian bale whether we're hugh jackman because the prestige in the case of of Christian Bale we have this strange set of occurrences that we find out is relatively boring and spoiler alert you know there are twins you know they're brothers they're twins and so forth so you have this strange occurrence and then the revelation is relatively sort of mundane Um, and then the opposite is true of Hugh Jackman that you have this sort of event that seems okay teleportation we've sort of seen that within the world of the film and then the revelation is actually spectacular that actually it becomes this and you mentioned about the coherency of fantasy and I just I'm trying to figure out whether Nolan is more like the Christian Bale narrative or whether he's more like the Hugh Jackman narrative that he, he sort of the answer that he gives is sort of strange and, 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 and fantastical, but it's got a level of coherency or digestibility, as you said, that you sort of like, yep. Okay. So it's complex, but it's, it's, di- it's sort of digestible complex fantasy. And so I, that's, that's fine. It's, it's, it's less like boring twins and more like uh, mechanical reproduction of the self, and so I'm, there was something quite nice about about the, those two strands of the Prestige. If, if people have seen the film, if they haven't, you can cut the last sort of three or four minutes of what I just said. <laughs> um, but about the, but about what, how choos, how how Nolan chooses and what he chooses to do with the reveal, because you said yeah he's interested in the power of revelation, but it's like what revelation is he giving, or is he not giving any revelation at all? And so I was just trying to think through that in relation to what those those two characters in the Prestige do, whether the revelation is sort of mundane and, and domestic and, and unspectacular or whether it's strange and fantastical but coherent and coherent enough
2: i think it's mundane i i think that oh. although I'm, I'm tempted to answer it, chris by saying it maybe nolan creates a chiasmus where on the you have both things operating at once in his filmmaking just like he has both characters in in the prestige although but i think it's more that he's and i i i have to say that i I felt like the, res- the the revelation that Tesla has actually created, I, it's a little bit, I didn't really love that about that. It's the yeah. only slight thing I don't love about the prestige. And and I feel like that's because it's a little bit against, Noel. I think Nolan's usually, it's like this incredible complexity. And then this, you realize that the thing that's oriented and everything, is just a banal object. And I think that that's why I made the allusion to Wells. And I think that's the idea of Citizen Kane, right? Like everything is structured about, there's just this, the banality of the sled. You know, there's this funny thing. This is not a, this is not a Nolan joke. It's a Wells joke. But so, so uh, Spielberg, I guess, asked Orson Wells if he could buy Rosebud, and Wells said to him, "Didn't you see the movie? We burned it." Hmm. So I think that. But I think the idea that it's burned is the point. Like it's just this thing that's just this crap that's just thrown away. And like the revelation that they're just twins, I think that that's more Nolan's, Ballywick. Like that's his. I like. I'm gonna give you this. But understand that what's at the heart of this whole complexity is this, this this banality, and I think, like, that's a real. I think that's a really powerful political position to, to hold mm. up.
1: Well, well I, I think you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. The the discrepancy in the film between spectacular technology, but also, uh, it's a film about parents and children and human imagination and the power of dreaming and uh, guilt in the case of Cobb and his relationship to his wife. And so if you kind of strip back the narrative complexity, I mean, uh, uh, there's a a few people kind of, you know, I suppose writing about the the, the film that actually say, well, actually it's relatively kind of standardised. You have goal-oriented storylines. You have a relatively happy, if ambiguous ending. You have a degree of kind of logical resolution in some senses. You have um, kind of familiar patterns you have the flashback as a standard device as a so a lot of it is relatively simple and yet some and maybe that's 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 it is that at the core it's relatively simple or it's banal or whatever it is we want to call it but he does—he kind of does something in the showmanship of those things, and those different elements and disparate elements, and and the layering of all the and inter, intertwining of these different kind of relatively conventional. Because all the layers are about we've got to get from here to here and get this. But it's the interweaving of those sort of relatively classical strands of narrative, out of which comes that kind of confusion. But actually, it's relatively stable, and and after a few times, you you sort of can get it. I mean, there are still little bits and bits and bobs, but. Um, there is a there is a degree of, as you say, a kind of digestibility to that to that complexity.
2: Yeah, I like I I think that's really true. And I, I think so so what we would say is he's more on the side of the Christian Bale character yeah. in in prestige. And I, I think that's true, although you did make a key point that Christian there's this the great end of Prestige where Hugh Jackman says you never understood it's the look on their faces like that's it's something miraculous happens. And I think that Nolan does understand that in a way that the Christian Bale character didn't. Right. Like he he thinks like if you can if, you, you know, Hugh Jackson says, if you can fool them for a minute, then you've created something really special. And I think Nolan, I think he's almost speaking directly for Nolan there, that yeah. there is that he does understand the creative power of the aesthetic and the way that it can produce something and produce a kind of belief that isn't that isn't possible outside of
0: it yeah and then i guess it's how it's how i'm interested in then what audiences do with it because you know i think the the, the final thing to sort of to touch on with the movie is the sort of way the film yeah offers this kind of metaphor of cinema and and what it therefore wants us to consider uh in relation to that metaphor i was struck again watching it this time that we have this sort of the explanation of the role of the architect or the dream architect as providing the structure uh which we fill in or that the, the the dreamers pl- that fill in um and that you know part of the is that you, you give them something that's incomplete um because it has to be incomplete so that they can then complete it themselves so don't make the the, the entire the city entirely uh mappable um which is again you know, the, the metaphor with cinema is, is exactly there, right? We, you know, no shot is ever complete. No set is ever complete. Um, we stitch it together. We put it together. So I'm, I'm interested in what that's saying. Are, are, we, are we the, the architects? Is, is, is Nolan the architect in this movie? He's providing us a structure which he's encouraging us to fill in and therefore encouraging us to think about the actively the role of filling in that we're doing uh or or, or or are we providing a str- i don't like would, would, Is that is that too glib or is that sort of roughly what you would take from the movie
2: yeah no i think that's pretty good alex I, th- I think that's right and i think that what he wants us to do is and i think you said it perfectly pay attention to this what's missing and the, our act of filling it in and the way we have to do that and i think that that's you know like i think most films don't Put our attention onto what's missing right like they they they, they try to they, they want us to turn a blind eye to what's not there and i think inception is saying you have to look at what's not there and see the way in which what's not there is playing this crucial role in what's there and i think that i guess for me that's one of the great aspects of the film that that we see what's not there as just as important as what's there and that that not this, this i think you, you put it perfectly like the You have to give, you have to give a space that's empty in order for there to, in order for it to be believable. And I think that just goes so against what most people think about how cinema operates, that it's Mm. this, even the notion of, I remember like Avatar, like the idea that you can just immerse yourself totally in it without any empty spaces. And that was part of the appeal of it. And you would say like, are you still, I don't want you to have, bring you back from Pandora because you're just totally there, right? Like that. And I think Nolan is the opposite of that. Like, and especially in this film, the way that what's just as you were saying, like what isn't there, counts for so much in the in creating the believability of it. And I think most of the time we don't think that. We don't think the blank spaces are crucial to our investment in something.
0: And I guess um, that the, what's um, what's interesting about that, in terms of uh, on an academic level, is that it links to what you do so well with your work, Todd, in the... in that. We have this notion the sort of throughout the seventies eighties and nineties certainly within the sort of psychoanalytic film theorist community of like of cinema as interpolation and cinema as as the political act of cinema being almost what you said there about avatar like it what cinema does is place the the spectator within a within a position where there's nothing left for them to add because the the film has already given everything. To them, it has immersed them in a particular narrative, and therefore a particular ideological structure, and therefore a, a, a particular value system. And there's nothing left for the cinema, for the spectator as a living, breathing, an individual to bring to the film. But, but actually, the ideological power of cinema. But obviously of inception if we want to use a smaller example um, is is in the opportunities for gaps that it offers I mean you know to, to bring it back to to my bread and butter the opportunities to fantasize it offers right. um, through its gaps through its evocation of, of gaps and difference and, and its and its separation from life um, so so in, in a way inception is is asking the spectator to go on a similar journey to what your your work is doing I guess
2: that's very nice, I think that's right, I think though that you 're right to the way you describe that trajectory is really good, right but Nolan is not only challenging a whole kind of filmmaking he 's challenging a whole kind of way of theorizing about yep. the cinema that says it 's ideological because it totally it it creates a world of total presence and and that you 're interpolated into that world, so mm-hmm. this idea it's borrowed from louis Althusser that that mm-hmm. film is ideological interpolation, just like you described, and I think that his Why has folk the way that he focuses on what's not there and what's missing and what the spectator has to do? I think it's completely challenged that idea of 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 spectatorship, which I I, you're right. I mean, I've spent a lot of time trying to trying to myself challenge that for sure, because I guess I've always felt like I've been more interested in the films that challenge what ideological interpolation than the films that just confirm it. And I feel like those films that challenge it are are actually more engaging and so i I just i I never felt i've always felt like that reducing the aesthetic to the ideological i thought was not that seemed wrong to me because the aesthetic i as i've always felt it was the thing that always was challenging what i had been ideologically interpolated into so
1: i just had the complete opposite sense Mm -hmm. of what the aesthetic did in terms of the film's relationship to you said about Alex this sort of metaphor of of cinema and and, um, cinema's long-standing relationship to the mind and the brain and how cinema is sort of thought like because of the um, you know I guess cinema and dreams and memory are are based on images that signify we have the idea of editing that we're always sort of self-editing as part of our um, part of our um, I guess subjectivity or or whatever it is but that and similarly the, the film is very and, and cinema itself i guess is very it, it kind of disruptively jumping from scene to scene so i think you were mentioning earlier about how we got here how did how did they get here well cinema does this all the time you know in the same way the brain edits what we see and, and so forth and divides things into manab- manageable um, uh, chunks we uh, yeah i'm thinking of kind of the stream of consciousness but what you were what you were both saying relates to, again back to fictional worlds and how so when Victor Perkins writes, movies always take us into the middle of things because the film and its story begin but the world does not. Characters have relevant histories. Uh, and then he talks about fictional worlds and this, I think this taps into the sort of the off screen and the blank space which of course chimes with animation. You know, you only need enough on the page to, to connote a world um, and even in the case of video games when characters move in digital video games and they move the world builds in front of them so it's sort of part of this generation. It's exactly what the film says about that relationship between creating and perceiving and actually Perkins says something similar with regards to fictional world. The camera's selectivity means that the framed image and the boundless fictional world create an account for one another. And it's exa- And that's exactly the, what the film is doing by creating a spectacle out of a world, a fictional world that can be creative and perceived at the same time, and what it means for us as spectators and the characters to intervene into that relationship, that that kind of reciprocal relationship is something that on uh, a narrative level, at the level of drama, they can enter into and that's where the, the jeopardy and the, and the narrative really, that's where the stuff is. But actually... It taps into to what we enjoy about the, the, the cinema, that the camera only selects a certain thing. It makes no sense to ask of a, of a painting what exists beyond the frame, but it makes perfect sense to ask of that of the cinema. Um, the pleasure of blank space, of off-screen space, how the fiction world is connoted, not through visibility, through sound. Why do we believe that the world of rear window exists beyond everything else that alleyway becomes really important down the side of the block of flats because stuff happens in that alleyway and that's what happens in the alleyway is really interesting we don't perceive it and it's not really that important for us but it at least tells us that the world is ticking by beyond the portion that we glimpse Um, and so all of that sort of believability and how that that believability is cemented um, as part of our experience of fictional worlds I think is something that really plays out and is interrogated by this sort of mind heist narrative of of inception so i really i really like what the film is doing in relation to to the believability and coherency of what it means to create a world populate it be interpolated into it to live in it to enjoy it to the to and then to leave it i guess um and so yeah i i I think what the film is doing reflexively about fictional worlds ties into to to cinema certainly um but yeah definitely got me got me thinking about what it means to build a world in in something like animation which is obviously of a different register um but still relies on a spectatorial filling in the blank space to assume that there's an off screen and a and and that and that sort of stuff but um yeah
2: yeah i think it's really one of the best films about the blank space right like that's really i mean it's funny because i think it's so crucial to the cinematic world in the way you described, even that rear window example is really great. And I, I but I think most films really try to ha- create a world in which we don't see what's not there. And I think Nolan wants us to see what's not there. And I think that's a really rare thing in a, in a mainstream blockbuster filmmaker like that. Mm-hmm. I think just like Alex was talking about all the, there's a lot of art cinema filmmakers that do that really a lot. And I, but I think Nolan is one of the few that is able to integrate that into the into a mainstream filmmaking.
0: The film is about an inception of a character, the 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 Killian Murphy character, um, who spends a majority of the movie one thinking they're one level further up the dream than actually they are. Right in the in the that that the, the Leonardo DiCaprio and his squad all know they are in a dream, and he doesn't know he's in a dream gets told he's in a dream, joins them down the layers, but doesn't know that the thing that where he was told was a dream was also a dream. Yeah. Um, and actually, that's what the film is, is that is that the film is Leonardo DiCaprio and his squad, and we are Killian Murphy, and what it wants us to do is come back up the layers, but all the way up to realise that the, and the idea that the film's narrative is, incept, is is wanting to insert into the audience, insert into Killian Murphy's character is, this is not real that's the, that's the message they put into the character it's just, he doesn't realise that the message needs to come one level further up for him to actually have any power over the relationship if he knew what they knew, that actually none of it is real the question isn't, what's a dream, what isn't the question is quest the fictionality of just everyday existence um, as, as a concept um, so that sort of sums up our thoughts on it do we have any final moments of the film we've not touched upon that we'd like to, to share um, I, I'm aware we have sort of really only talked about like four minutes of it but, but we've talked around it a lot um, or is there any final thoughts so why don't we start with Chris and then we'll let Todd sort of gather his thoughts and then I can throw Chris under the bus and make him do it first um, That's fine. <laughs> so that he can summarise it's... his thoughts on a complex movie no, quickly no, no. Uh, in a succinct and logical fashion <laughs> no, I'm,
1: I mean I've always been interested in puzzle films and 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 these sorts of movies that play games that are about fiction. Whether it's The Truman Show, whether it's Memento, all that all that sort of stuff. I've always been interested in, in um, I think plot twists sort of generally. Um, and as I've as I've been studying and, and teaching and, and writing about narrative and, and thinking about sort of transgressions and and. Uh, Process, a tangling between the world of the telling and the world of the, the told and people being able to enter into you know, the hit cinema has a long history of this characters walking into into films what was it Purple Rose of Cairo or stepping out of films, so I've always been interested in those kinds of transgressions um, and while the film doesn't there, there aren't I mean, it's still it's doing the similar sort of thing, you know, that playing exactly with you saying those those levels of, of of fictionality and and how we define levels of of uh, certain kinds of of fictionality. But um, I think if you take each of the levels, they make absolute sort of. I guess narrative sense, and there is a a set of concrete characters and a a, a goal that needs to be um, achieved, or a a resolution, or something that needs to be solved. Uh, I never really thought about it's the continual the film's ability to, through its editing practices, to because film itself behaves like a brain and it can move between different streams at various different points, and and it's and it's because of that that perhaps the film is is sort of yeah one of the most careful and sort of pointed uh, uh, interrogations of the relationship as one of the characters says, between what you know and what you believe um, and the extent actually to which that matters to go back to the final ending of the film the film truncates that final shot um, and we assume it still happened stu- assume something still happened whether it continued or whether it didn't but that that sort of failure to disclose at the end is, is sort of and, and Cobb's uh, decision to not look He's, he becomes transfixed by his family is kind of the main the main thing to to sort of take away from it but um no I think I mean I've, i also found it funny that the dream sharing program was designed in the military I thought that was an interesting little moment in the film <laughs> that they sort of slip as a slip underneath but um no I mean obviously I think we could have a lot of these debates in relation to Tenet to see what what kind of happens there and um Uh, yeah and so that was in my mind that was one of the the few films i managed to get to the cinema to see over the summer before we we sort of went back into our shells again but um yeah i mean i love films about the crisis of time the crisis of space um if inception is a mind heist then i guess avengers endgame is our time heist so what other (laughs) senses are going to happen next um but no I, i yeah i loved it a lot more than than i have done previously and um yeah perhaps it is slightly better than the adjustment bureau (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> i think so, adjustment is pretty good though um yeah. so i i do i would say that i i think that the one thing we haven't really talked about is the character of maul and i i thought i feel like and we talked a little bit about her but i feel like she's one of those characters that and i think it relates to the way we talked about absence because she's constantly the film depicts her as the figure of like she's really mal in the french sense of evil right like she's a she's a figure seemingly of evil she's constantly thwarting their plans and yet i think what the film is trying to say there's a way in which she's really the the figure that most gets what the film is trying to say about the importance of the fiction and our investment in it Real and how that's more important than is this real or is it not real? And so I, I I've always thought and uh, that 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 Nolan really invested the figure of Mall in this as, as almost the central character of the film. And I think it's interesting to reread the film from like viewing her as having this insight that Cobb doesn't have that he needs to come to and that we as spectators need to come to. So I guess that's the only thing that I. Feel like we didn't maybe or I didn't fully uh flush out that I think is a really important aspect of it. and in the way it ties to all the things we were saying about absence and and fiction
0: and the way she sort of structures the various layers i guess to the of, of bow and everything and that she's one of the only characters that seems to be able to to be in different in the layers aren't are not are not a process of going up and down for her she just seems to be able to transcend um all that and that gives her a certain um extra diegetic quality as well right. um yeah terrific i mean i i i've taken a lot from that so i'm sure listeners will too and i, and I believe inception is on the on the uk uh, a-level syllabus so any a-level students out there i hope that was helpful for your exams this year because i know you've had a troubled year um todd thank you uh, so much for coming on the podcast if, if people so i'm sure the fictional um christopher nolan is still available and out there in the world and available for eager new film readers to to digest
2: yeah, as far as I know, it's still you can still buy it. Yeah.
0: Great, terrific. Well, please do check that out. And um, and uh, do you have any social media presence or anything at all? Do you like to plug?
2: i have a little podcast that i do but uh yeah that, that, it's called the why theory podcast so yeah we we i don't think we've talked about nolan but we 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 do do a film thing occasionally but it's mostly theoretical like hegel and
0: psychoanalysis and <laughs> sounds great to me i'm i'm signing up um available to download um terrific um chris i will see you oh I'll, i have to do the admin now don't i You
1: always have to, if I do it, I'll get it wrong and it'll be animation slash fantasy and we won't know where we are. We'll be back,
0: we'll be backwards. It'll be Inception-like, so... But very quickly then uh, you can of course find us at fancy animationorg where you can read our latest blog posts and download uh, past episodes of the podcast um, we're at fananimresearch F-A-N-A-N-I-M research across all social media Twitter Facebook Instagram and Reddit uh, take part in the conversations there let us know your favourite Kristen Nola movie and why and we'll endeavour to have a little chat about it and keep these conversations flowing because they are rich uh, complicated and delve into many different layers um, but that has been us for this episode and we will see you uh, next time. Goodbye. Bye.